some of you sports fans may remember uh, Dandy Don Meredith. Who remembers that name? Dandy Don Meredith. He was a former great quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys and later uh, a popular announcer for Monday Night Football with Howard Cosell. As an announcer, at the moment of the football game, when Dandy Don felt that one team was too far ahead for the other team to catch up, he would sing a line from an old country song. Turn out the lights, the party's over. That's a line from an old Willie Nelson song. And the expression, the party's over, was a way of saying that whatever you were enjoying is over. It's time for a reality check. And now you must face the consequences. Some 2,600 years ago, there was a party in the city of Babylon. But there came a time at this party when reality set in. As God made it very clear, the party was over. We are continuing in the book of Daniel this morning. But before we dig in, I really need to set the stage for you. Last week, we concluded with King Nebuchadnezzar giving humble praise to the one true God. Well, some 23 years have since passed. 23 years have come and gone. Nebuchadnezzar has died. And Daniel is probably in his 80s living in retirement. After the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, a succession of Babylonian kings have come and gone. And most of them experiencing untimely deaths. And now, at the time of Daniel chapter 5, there are co-kings. Co-kings who share the throne. And they are Nabonidus and his eldest son, Belshazzar. Now, for centuries... Historians and archaeologists knew that Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon, not Belshazzar. And of course, the critics said the Bible got it all wrong. However, in 1854, while exploring the ruins in southern Iraq, several small cylinders made of clay 
were uncovered and these cylinders contained inscriptions verifying that Nabonidus and Belshazzar were indeed father and son. But not only that, during the last portion of the reign of Nabonidus, he lived in Arabia. And in his absence, he appointed the kingship of Babylon to his son, Belshazzar. So the Bible got it right. Anyway, at the time of Daniel chapter 5, Nabonidus has been captured by the Medo-Persian army under the command of Cyrus the Great. He's a prisoner of war and he will never see the city of Babylon again. But his son Belshazzar is still in the city. A city that is completely surrounded. For several months, the city of Babylon was besieged by the Medes and the Persians. And that's usually a bad thing. But historians tell us that the city had a 20-year supply of food stored away in their storehouses. And the Euphrates River ran right through the city. So the Babylonians had plenty of food and water to hold out during the siege. King Belshazzar was convinced they were invincible. He was confident that no army could break through the massive walls and the gates that guarded the city. He assumed the people within its walls were safe and could easily wait out the enemy. And so it seemed to the king there was no real cause for concern. And the only reasonable thing to do for this king was to throw a party. As crazy as that sounds, that sets the stage for this passage. So if you have your Bible, turn to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5, and we will begin with verse 1. I'll give you a chance to get there. Daniel 5, beginning with verse 1. Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles. And he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and the silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, 
and the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. The party was hopping with a thousand nobles plus their female companions. The band was playing and the wine was flowing. It was a public spectacle. And Belshazzar, who apparently is the life of the party, has a wild idea. How cool would this party be if we drank wine from the sacred gold and silver vessels taken out of the holy temple in Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar? We can drink from them and make toasts to our gods. After all, our gods defeated the God of the Hebrews. And our gods will deliver us from the Persians and the Medes who surround us. This was Belshazzar's way of openly mocking the Most High God of heaven. Of heaven. Even though his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, had humbly praised him. Now, just for clarification, I said that Nebuchadnezzar was the grandfather of Belshazzar. Whereas this passage I just read says that Nebuchadnezzar was the father, if you notice, the father of Belshazzar. Did I make a mistake? It's possible, but not this time. Let me explain. Just like last week, the original writing of this chapter is in Aramaic, not Hebrew. Aramaic. And in Aramaic, there is no word for grandfather. And sometimes in the Bible, you may read words like, my father's father which explains the same kind of relationship. In this context, the word father can also be translated to mean ancestor or predecessor or forefather. And in the case of Belshazzar, he is most likely the grandson on his mother's side of Nebuchadnezzar. So the sacred vessels are brought out of storage, dusted off, filled with wine, and all the partygoers make toast to their pagan gods as they drink up. Well, a very patient God has a limit to how far he will allow people to continue in their sin. And this time, God has had enough. 
Let's pick up beginning with verse 5. Verse 5. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. So out of thin air, this hand mysteriously appears. It's visible to all. It begins writing on the wall of the banquet hall. Everybody sees it. The place gets silent and very serious, and we are told the shock of it apparently sobers the king up very quickly. His face turns pale. His legs go limp. His knees start to knock. Everyone recognized that something supernatural was happening, and it most certainly was. God was crashing the party and turning the banquet hall into a courtroom. So what does Belshazzar, the life of the party, do? Well, let's read on beginning with verse 7. The king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, Any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. The king shouted for his wise men. And if they were at the party, they probably sobered up really quickly as well. The king offered up a great reward to any of them who could read the writing on the wall and explain its interpretation. But consistent with their track record of being completely useless, they can't read the writing or interpret what it means. It seems that God is keeping these wise men in the dark. And in doing so, God shines a light on his old faithful servant, Daniel, who wasn't even invited to the party. Beginning with verse 10, we are told, the queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, 
illumination, insight, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. The queen, whom we might call the queen mother, hears all the commotion, or maybe better yet, maybe it's the eerie silence she now hears from a once rowdy party, and it gets her attention. The queen is likely the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar and the mother of Belshazzar, and she enters the banquet hall. The queen learns what has happened and she gives Belshazzar some encouragement and then some advice. She explains that in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, there was a great wise man who had the ability to interpret dreams and solve difficult problems. He was once the head magi. His interpretations were always correct and his prophecies were always fulfilled, and his name is Daniel. She tells the king to summon Daniel to get his answer. That brings up a good point. As a Christian, you may not be invited to many parties. But when trouble comes, don't be surprised if you're the one who is called. Well, Daniel is called. And beginning with verse 13, we read, Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now I have heard about you, that a spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers who were brought in before me that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you, that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Daniel is brought into the banquet hall before the king. He's front 
and center before all the party goers. And the king asks, Are you that Daniel who was of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? I am assuming that Daniel nodded his head to confirm to the king who he was. And then the king continues and says, I have heard that the spirit of the gods, remember he's a pagan king, the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight and intelligence and wisdom. My wise men have nothing for me. But I hear you can help. And if you do, I will reward you with power and prestige and possessions. Look, Daniel, here's everything a man could ever want. Just tell me about the writing on the wall and it's all yours. Essentially, Daniel is told he is the last resort. This man of God has been ignored by this king for many years. But be that may, Daniel has something to say. And here it is, beginning with verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. However... I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. O king, the Most High God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, And men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed. And whomever he wished, he spared alive. And whomever he wished, he elevated. And whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, He was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was like that of beasts and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until... He recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whom he wishes. Yet you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven and have brought and they have brought the vessels from his house before you and you and your nobles your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver and gold of bronze iron wood and stone which you do not see 
hear or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life breath and all your ways you have not glorified. Then the hand was sent from him and this inscription was written out. Daniel could care less about the king's rewards. Nevertheless, he did have something to tell the king. The painful truth. After Daniel refused the rewards, he told the king that he was personally familiar with his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel reminded Belshazzar of how great and how mighty his grandfather had been. But when his pride got the best of him, Nebuchadnezzar was reduced to thinking and acting like an animal until he finally humbled himself and acknowledged the sovereignty of the Most High God. Nebuchadnezzar had to learn his lesson the hard way. And in front of all the partygoers, Daniel accused Belshazzar of intentionally repeating the same prideful sins of his grandfather. O king, you know the story of your grandfather all too well. And now you are making the same mistake he did. You have exalted yourself and set yourself up against the most high God of heaven by openly mocking him and praising your false pagan gods. And the handwriting on the wall you just saw, that came straight from God. Belshazzar, you should have known better. You should have learned from the past, but apparently that history lesson from your grandfather was ignored and lost by you. Then beginning with verse 25, Daniel interprets the handwriting on the wall. He says, This is the inscription that was written out. Mani, Mani, Tekiel, Eupharsi. This is the interpretation of the message. Mani, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekiel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Paris, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Written in Aramaic across the wall were these words, Mani, Mani, Tekio, Afarsin. The word Mani means counted or weighed. Here God was telling Belshazzar his life and his kingdom were numbered. God has counted your days and your number is up. Your time on this earth is finished. All that you strive for and all that you built, all that you took and all that you own are for naught. It's all over. 
And to confirm it, God wrote it down twice. The word tekio means weighed. On God's scales, according to God's holy standards of what is right and what is wrong, the king himself has been weighed and he is found wanting. For Belshazzar, all of his defiance and disobedience and idolatry and blasphemy, all of his sins have been weighed and he has fallen short. He has failed and he is condemned. And then lastly comes the word euphorism, which is a plural form of the word parise. In a nutshell, parise means divided. God is taking the king from Belshazzar and is going to divide it between the Medes and the Persians whose armies surround the city of Babylon. Everything Belshazzar thought was more important than God will be stripped from him. And he will leave this earth empty-handed. So God has said to Belshazzar, your number is up. You are weighed short and your kingdom is divided up. Yes, it's your party, but the party is over. Then Belshazzar gave orders and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Belshazzar didn't seem to get the message because he ordered Daniel to be clothed in royal robes and a gold chain put around his neck and he was proclaimed as the third ruler in the kingdom. Daniel told him he was not interested in that stuff for Daniel knew these honors were short-lived. And that very same night the city of Babylon would fall and Belshazzar would be killed. So let me tell you what happened. This is a really cool story. As I have already said, the city of Babylon was surrounded. It was under siege for several months. The Medo-Persian army couldn't break through the walls and the gates. And they just couldn't stay there forever either. So they devised a brilliant plan. If you recall, the mighty Euphrates River ran under the wall and through the city. So the best soldiers of the Medo-Persian army were stationed at the north wall where the river entered the city 
and at the south wall where the river exited the city. Can you picture that? The rest of the army were already far upstream at a place where the Euphrates passed a large swamp. Far out of sight of the city, a huge canal was secretly dug to divert the river to the swamp. That night, on October 12th, 539 BC, they finished the canal. And then they cut into the bank of the river and the water started flooding into the swamp. Like somebody turning off a faucet, suddenly the water of the Euphrates River stopped flowing into the city. And when the water levels sank below the walls, the Medes and the Persians simply walked into the city under the walls without even being noticed. The city was captured without a fight. The Babylonian Empire had fallen that very night and Daniel tells us Belshazzar was killed and Darius the Mede was appointed to govern Babylon. This chapter began with a party. It started out festive and carefree. But it ended with fear and finality. And I'm afraid that's the way it will be for many who live their life as if it is a party and do not understand that one day for them the party will be over. We know this life is short. But for some, it's much shorter than you might think. When Belshazzar got out of bed that morning and went to his party later on, he had absolutely no idea that would be his very last day on this earth. It's true. And you know what? It's just as true for you and me as well. Our lives are in the hands of God and He has numbered our days. It's just a matter of time when our number is up. And the question is, are you ready? Don't let the handwriting on the wall find you unprepared. Get right with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, and when you leave this earth, well then let me just say, the party's really just getting started. Let me pray. Father, I thank You for this time in Your Word. I thank you, Lord, for the finality of it. 
It's kind of in your face. We are in your hands. And none of us know when our time is up. Father, I pray, even now, that for those who are not ready, they would come to that place where they know you and trust you and love you. Father, may you be honored and glorified. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me say, maybe there is someone here who, if they're honest with themselves, would say, I'm not ready. If I was to stand before God right now, I'm not ready. I have some good news for you. You can be. The Bible says in John 3.16, you know this passage, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That is a very deep verse. But one thing I want to pull out of it is this. God has a purpose for our lives. And that purpose is that we might experience eternal life. Everlasting life with Him. Everlasting life is free. But it cost God a lot. It cost Him His Son. Eternal life can be experienced in the here and now. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life. And that you might have it abundantly. That does not mean there won't be trouble. But you can have a full and meaningful life in the here and now. And lastly, eternal life means... That when we leave this earth, we will be with Jesus. That's his purpose. Eternal life is his purpose. But we got a problem, don't we? Our problem is sin. The Bible teaches that all of us are sinners by nature and by choice. Every single one of us. There is a wage for sin, and it's death. separation from God. God has a purpose, but we have a problem. But God had a remedy. Romans 5.8 says, but while we were yet sinners, while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. Christ took his 
took our sins upon himself. He did something we could not do on our own. He paid a debt that we could not pay. A debt he did not owe. Because he loved us. Christ paid it all. And he took the death penalty of sin for you. God has a purpose. We have a problem. God had a remedy. And we have a response. The Bible is clear. We are to repent of our sins. If you're going away, you should not be going. Turn around and go the other way. If you're walking away from God, turn back towards Him. Repent of your sin. Place your faith in Jesus. And surrender to Him as Lord. The Bible says, I love this verse, for whosoever, that means you, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a promise. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never invited Christ into your heart to be your Lord and Savior. I would like to invite you to do that now. Pray with me. Dear Lord, for too long I have kept you out of my life. I know I have sinned against you and I cannot save myself. I ask for your, for your forgiveness. I believe you died on the cross for my sins and rose again to prove you were the Son of God. I turn from my sins and by faith I invite you into my life. From this point on, I want to trust and follow you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.